Welcome to the Republican Professor this morning in California. We have a wonderful guest, Mr. David Frankel. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you. David is the author of this book, Coming to Terms. I think you can see it, but if I pulled it up, yeah, there we go. Coming to Terms. Uh, it, I'm For those of you listening uh, on YouTube, you can, oh, there you go. David's got it. It's a book called Coming to Terms. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, I have this Zoom background that that's the San Francisco Bay and it's the Golden Gate Bridge and it's obscuring the book. But uh, it's a it's a, a physically small book, but it is uh, philosophically huge, I would say. So it's got both. It's got big and small. And it's um, a, a wonderful read. It's a wonderful uh, short chapters read. If you're in a hurry or you want to have it in your pocket at the grocery store, or if you're a night nighttime reader like I am, I like to read something before bed. Uh, or if you want to have something with your coffee in the morning, just something short. It's very interesting read. And the subtitle of this coming to terms book is is a mass shooting survivors reckoning with vulnerability and self-protection. Wow. Wow, 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 David. Yep. <laughs> David says, yep. Yeah. I don't know where to start. Um, we can start anywhere. First of all, you're an attorney, right? I am an attorney. Okay. I've been an attorney for 32 years. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, when this event happened that spurred uh, the book and things I talk about in the book, it was spurred by this mass shooting experience at 101 California Street in San Francisco. I was a... Um, young lawyer, third year corporate associate, uh, uh, living the life, working at a large international law firm, doing sophisticated mergers and acquisitions types of transactions. Uh, I was, I was, am good at that trade. Uh, I was, um, uh, I used to take lunches and I used to think to myself and talk to my fellow junior associates and scratch my head and think, you know, there's got to be a way for me to figure out how I can make this law thing work for me. And <clears throat> happily, through the different um, ins and outs of life experience, including what I describe in this book and, uh, uh, you know, the, the use of technology to become a one-man corporate law firm, I, I am now living that existence. I do have a very successful corporate law practice in San Francisco. I, I have a great um, stable of clients. Uh, I'm their go-to person for navigating complex legal matters. And it's very rewarding. I, I get to help small businesses, family businesses, um, you know, do everything that business needs, uh, raising money, contracts, everything other than litigation, which is not something I do. Uh, and so um, it has been a long, a long trip from there to here and uh, many bumps in the road, much, much experience I, I got to benefit from. Uh, but on that day, if, if you want to get right into it, you know, I was in the middle of closing a corporate transaction. It was any other day, you know, could be a day like you're having right now day like I'm having right now, where you go to the office, you, you expect to have five phone calls and three meetings. Um, and I happen to be right in the middle of uh, a delicate negotiation for a uh, couple million dollar loan. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I was 
I had a client. He was in South America at the time. He was a San Francisco company, but he was traveling. Uh, Very limited phone access to him. And uh, we were negotiating the fine points of this loan. And it it was a a company that made clothing, a clothing designer. And they, uh, like a lot of clothing designers then and now, uh, the, the, the actual product was designed in San Francisco and it was to be sold at a major department store in San Francisco, like Nordstrom's, but it was being manufactured in China. And in order to get the clothing to get manufactured and get on a boat and hit the water in time for it to get to San Francisco, clear customs and get to the store and get out on the shelves by the appropriate fall season or whatever, this deal had to be funded this day. This was the deadline day. So I was on the phone with the other lawyer, the lender's lawyer, and the lender uh, and my client were quibbling over uh, whether we were, we were the borrower, whether we were gonna pay the legal fees of the lender. And uh, it wasn't a difficult transaction. And my client wanted to set a $5,000 limit on what we would pay for the uh, other for the bot for the lender's legal fees, my client said uh, it's no deal if we have to pay more than five thousand dollars for their legal fees because a large Los Angeles law firm could bill you for twenty five thousand, thirty thousand dollars. It's just not a big company; they couldn't afford it. And I was supposed to negotiate the point, and I was supposed to call my client at three o'clock and give him an update on what the situation was. And so I, uh, you know, it was one of these situations. I was on call to get a a phone call from the Los Angeles lawyer. And I, I, uh, I couldn't do any other work. I just kind of had to, you know, shoot the shit for a minute, kind of, you know, wait this, these few minutes. So I was talking to a buddy of mine, a different lawyer, just kind of talking, chatting, And all of a sudden, I hear a knock on my door. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I say, come in. And uh, it's uh, this guy named Steve, a senior litigation associate, turned out to be a total hero. uh, And I use that in the true sense of the word. And he was in the process of running around the entire circumference of the building on the 36th floor to warn everyone there was someone in the building shooting people and if and he he suggested to get the hell out of there and he shut my door mm-hmm. and i i said to the guy on the phone i said andy i don't know what's going on here but apparently there's somebody shooting people i got to go mm-hmm. and just like they train you for in a fire drill situation i calmly grabbed my briefcase, put my laptop in my briefcase, grabbed a few papers, including the signature pages for that deal, okay? Because I had my client's signatures and authority once he said, okay, to send them to the other side and close this deal to get this financing that was so important to my client. And I grabbed my coat and uh, I left my office and I went to the appointed location which was the emergency stairs. And then there was a line of people at the emergency stairs. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be a dick, but let's go. Like, you know, right. if there's somebody shooting people, um, let's go. And they told me, well, Ron, this uh, senior partner who's back then is, uh, uh, was younger than I am now, but seemed like a decrepit old man at the time. Like he kind of guy who would walk along, shuffle along and pick up lint off the carpet. He was a founding partner of the firm. Also a hero, felt a responsibility for us all. And they said, Ron went down to check to see if it was safe. And I thought, oh, well, that, that might be a good idea, I suppose. And as we were waiting there, he came running up, screaming, he's coming, he's coming. And as soon as he got through the door, the couple of people who were at the front slammed that fire door shut. And unbeknownst to us, we had just locked a gunman in the stairwell 
and stopped him from killing anybody else. Really? Wow. But unbeknownst to us, he had already done quite a bit of damage and, yeah. and quite a bit of killing. Wow. Um, and once we locked him in there, and of course, being totally ignorant of guns at the time, I, I didn't know that, you know, unless he was, uh, unless he had a uh, 50 caliber rifle with him, I could have stood right at that fire door and taunted the guy and he couldn't have hit me anything at all. I mean, those are two inch steel doors, but we didn't know anything about that. Yeah. Of course, probably not a good idea to do that anyway. So right. people scattered and ran and uh, uh, there was uh, like a flurry of people running and some people like secretaries used to wear high heels at work and stuff. And yeah. they, a couple of them were toppling over. I remember kind of propping one woman up, you know, in any other scenario it would have been in uh, like uh, impermissible touching almost, you know, because yeah. it was like my hand on her side to make sure she didn't fall. And, and she, she kept going. And this one secretary who was like a leader secretary was like this way, this way. And I thought to myself, I don't know if this gunman comes out, where do I want to be? Like, where's the smartest place for me? And then it occurred to me, I want to go in this hidden file room that yeah. is hidden to make it look like it's not even a room. There's the doors. They didn't, they designed it because they, they didn't want clients to walk by and know there was a door there. They wanted it to be a hidden thing. So it was actually looked like a piece of wall and a spring and you'd push the spring in and in there would be like a little file clerk room and a little data entry. And so I go running in there and, uh, there's this guy in there and he's doing data entry on the computer. And I said, stop what you're doing. And he said, Hey, this is do it five. I, go, mm. I don't care. Just stop what you're doing. This is an emergency. Somebody is shooting people in the building. And his first words were, do you think it's a terrorist? And this is way pre nine 11, you know, this is 1993. Right. And I was thinking, Oh, was it before crazy. the Trade Center? Was it before World Trade Center, 1993? Uh, I I don't know. You could check the date. It was the date that the shootings happened was July 1st, 1993, and I don't know when the first World Trade Center attack was. Um, but in any yeah. case, well, that, that was, was a bomb. It was, was attempted bomb. bombing, yeah. right? Um, Different kind of ammo. But it wasn't really on my radar. Let's just yeah, say. sure, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, and I said, okay, tell me about these rooms. And I'm, I'm the lawyer, I'm wearing a suit. So it makes me like a, an officer in the law firm corps, you know? And yeah. he, he was like, well, that's, this is a file room. And that other room over there is a, uh, uh, is, is, uh, uh, my, my boss's office. And this is a second office. Mm. So I, I open up the first, uh, room and it's just shelves and shelves and shelves. And I imagine, what am I lying on a shelf prone and the gunman comes in, I'm dead. So forget this. And then I look around and this corporate seal catches my eye and that's pictured here on this book. Yeah, right. Right. But right. this is what it actually looks like is a three pound steel corporate seal. Right. Yeah. 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 And I grabbed this because I thought if it comes down to it, I'm, I'm going to fight for my life. I'm mm -hmm. going to go hand to hand. And this is, this is going upside this dude's head, whoever. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, we went and looked in the second room and it was kind of empty, no phone. It was an abandoned supervisor office. Went in the third office and there was a desk and a phone and a bunch of uh, file boxes. So I said, let's go in here. So we went in there, we shut the door. There was no lock. And uh, I said, help me, we're going to pile boxes against this door. If this guy comes in and he tries to shoot us through the door, we're going to have a lot of paper between that and us. So right. uh, we, the first layer was like six boxes and then five, yeah. four, three, two. So we made like a pyramid against the door. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then we felt like if he came, uh, we'd have a fighting chance. Right. And then we used the phone to call our loved ones and let them know we were okay. And, uh, and then we waited and uh, we were talking and talking on the phone, taking turns on the phone. 
And, um, and then I said, you know, I better call this other lawyer. Uh, got nothing else to do. So I called the other lawyer in LA and I said, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but we're, uh, we're trapped in a room, barricaded in, and some, somebody apparently is shooting in our office. Was this the lawyer that was on the other side of the deal? Lawyer that was on the other side of the deal in LA. He goes, we're watching it on TV right now. Wow. I go, really? What are they showing you? He goes, well, they're showing us that there's a gunman in your building. They have helicopters all around. The SWAT team is there. They're on their way. They're clearing from the top of the building down. And and that's what they reported on the news. And I said, look, man, we got to close this deal. And he goes, well, uh, it's highly unusual. I said, well, look, I have the signature pages with me and I promise I will give you my word right now. This deal is closed. You send the money. And when I get home, I will fax you these signature pages. I, I guarantee it. And he said, you know, I have never advised a client to fund a loan without the signatures, but I've never been called by a lawyer barricaded inside a building under a gunman uh, threat. And so I'm going to do it. Wow. How much money was he going to send again? $3 million. Wow. That's and I said, that's crazy. I That's promise amazing. You, you will not regret this. And I thought to myself, if my clients pissed over the five grand, let the firm pay, you know, yeah. what do I care? This is wow. we're closing. And I closed Close. the deal. You closed the deal during and, the mass uh, murder. Well, well I, I didn't, I mean, didn't know you, it was you know, a mass murder at be, the time. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing story. It's amazing. That's, and, that, uh, and then we heard the shot. We heard the gunman off himself. It turned out our little office shared a wall with that same fire stairwell that he was locked in. Mm. And uh, and then later, later, somebody came and knocked on our door and said, it's OK, it's safe to come out. And we said, are you sure? And they, she said, well, we're pretty sure. I said, well, we're pretty comfortable. Why don't you come back when you're sure? And she said, everybody's come out. Everybody is, is out gathering. And, and uh, if you want to stay in here, that's fine. But everybody else is coming out. So we, we undid our barricade and we went out and mm-hmm. we, uh, we met up in the conference room. And, uh, and then we heard the screaming. And it turned out to be SWAT yelling, SWAT, SWAT, SWAT. <laughs> but, but we couldn't really tell what it was until we saw them come and, you know, fully, fully kitted up and, and, and decked out. And then they, they asked us to write down our statements and we started to hear a little bit more about what had happened. How, how long after that did you, did it take for you to find out what the murder devastation was? uh, How many people that he had murdered? How many people that he attempted to murder? Who were wounded. Took a little while. There were a few anecdotes. Oh, so and so got shot. So and so's dead. So and so's in the hospital. They're on their way to the hospital. Um, the full ramifications. It, it took. It took maybe twelve hours before we really found out. After they after they took our statements, they let us out, and I I walked. Uh, I, I I called my wife at the time. I told her um, I was fine and. I'd be making it home soon. And then I walked down the the street in San Francisco to the closest bar. And, uh, Hmm. and I walked in there and I (laughs) I got a drink, you know, uh, said, give me a beer. I need a beer. And, uh, I drank a beer and, and then a reporter deduced that I had been part of it or near it and started pesking on me. And I got a, a little bit annoyed and, told him to screw off and I uh-huh. left and I, I got a cab and I went home and did then you fa- started the did process. you fax those pages? And of course I did. I faxed That's the pages cool. and finished that deal off. Wow. Um, and then we learned more and then, and then the grief set in and there's this whole yeah. like post incident trauma that you go through and uh, mm-hmm. funerals and eulogies. Right. And, uh, and then I learned what happened to all the other people and uh, yeah. I, I heard of different different uh, acts of heroism 
by mm-hmm. by people that you might not have assumed that they were heroes by just by knowing them and uh there were a lot of heroes that day and, and i wasn't one of them i was just a, a I am a regular person, you know, uh, looking to survive a uh, difficult situation. Well, yeah, I mean, you were actually a good lawyer at this, at the, during that whole time. You you finished the deal with your client. I mean, that's amazing. That's that's. Uh, I, you know, I was living in California at the time. I just moved to California in June of 1993, right after I graduated from high school. Hmm. And I was thinking as I was, I was thinking I'd never heard of this mass murder. And I, it's one of those things where I was like, I had to think about it for a sec. Why hadn't I heard of it? Because I was in Southern California at the time. And if it was all over the news, then I realized, duh. The reason I hadn't heard of it is because I was in boot camp at the time in San Diego. And if you know anything about boot camp, you don't sit around watching TV and nor do you read the newspaper. You are doing other things. And so that's why I missed that. I totally missed it. I didn't even know about it. And I never knew about it until I read about it. Uh, So it was interesting to see that this, this thing I missed big miss thing i missed and uh as i'm getting older i have to put two and two together like that sometimes but um yeah it's tell us about the uh time afterward the emotional issue that you have um feeling like you're you know the trauma and and being a survivor and all that do you feel well, like, uh, some of you your know, friends died right some several of, of my friends died and and colleagues uh, people i respected mm-hmm. uh a, a few in particular you know hit me a little bit harder on an emotional level you go to a lot of funerals uh when something like this happens there is a solidarity uh there's no one person at the firm who skipped somebody's funeral you know you might yeah. have petty grudges when you're working side by side sometimes. Oh, I don't like the way that guy rides me on this uh, reef or I don't like this or I don't like that. But hey, you know, uh, we weren't we were a large firm, but the office had about 250 people working at it and it everyone knew each other. Uh, you say hi to each other. You have the same Christmas parties, same Thanksgiving parties, everything like that. So everybody went to every funeral. And um, yeah, there were a couple that were really, uh, you know, for me personally, for everybody involved, there was tragedy enough to go around. But for me personally, I was touched by two particular uh, tragic circumstances. One was uh, my friend John Scully, who was a uh, associate same year as me, a surfer from Hawaii, uh, who would come over and uh, hang out at my house. Sometimes I would go to his house. Him and his wife were at my first marriage, which happened just uh, a little bit before the shootings. In fact, a month or so before. So uh, oh, wow. I was off and my my first week or so back was when this incident occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and John wanted to move on to other things, find a different way. Didn't really like working in a large law firm. His wife was studying to be a lawyer. That particular day, she was using our law library. That particular day, uh, when the gunmen started chasing people down on the 35th floor, and it was only a fluke, you know, I was on the 36th floor. There's internal staircases that connect the 34th, 35th, and 36th floors at the time in this building. And it's only a fluke that he went for the 35th floor first it turned out um that uh because we did a we did like a debrief and asked everybody to write their statement and i read all those statements so i actually know what happened he was he was trying i guess for the 35th floor he ended up getting out first on 34 and the reason was that he uh uh the two secretaries had hit the down button for lunch 
-hmm. and they were ready to go down for lunch and he was still loading up weapons in the elevator the door opened and unexpectedly and he literally said to them i'll be with you in a second and they saw that he had all these guns and they they ran and then he hit the fire alarm in the uh, elevator to stick it open you know and then he started his his massacre there instead of his initial plan. He actually had a list of lawyers' names he wanted to kill, and he didn't get to his list. He he ended up going randomly around. And um, when the shooting started, my friend John went to retrieve his wife. That put him in harm's way. She was in harm's way, and uh, and they they were running for their lives. They got noticed by the gunman. And he chased them down to a place that was my my former office that I had moved out of. And they tried to barricade the door shut, but didn't have enough time. And he broke in on them. And John uh, literally took the bullets for his wife. He shielded her and took like eight bullets or whatever. This is the guy from Hawaii. Hers, you this, know? Is the, this is the surfer. Yeah. Is, yeah. And he gave his life for hers and wow. she got shot and recovered and he he died on the scene in her arms, you know, and wow. such a tragic thing. It's hard to, you know, really imagine. Yeah. Um, so that one was really a, a painful thing to know about and think about, uh, not dwell on, but just to honor the, the man's heroism and courage and to put his life above his wife's, you know, and sure literally take the bullets for her. Mm -hmm. um, just tremendous. And then um, there was um, another lawyer, Brian Berger. He was one of my mentors. And uh, his situation was a little bit different. He survived the shooting day. He was on a stretcher. He was one of the people who got taken out and he survived the shooting day. But he had a, uh, excuse me, he had a, um, a shard of bullet that was uh, too close to his heart to operate. And he knew after he recovered from the hospital that any one day could be his last day. He had a newborn daughter and uh, he came back to work and he lived every day like the fullest. And um, I had lunch with him during this time and he was cheerful. Uh, in general and he he was uh, just a wonderful example of somebody who is is living every day and living fully and yet within a few months after that uh it took him and mm. uh, uh that was super sad also so um and, and you know of course there was uh what was Berger's first name again brian 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 okay. Berger. Uh, great lawyer, phenomenal, just a, just a very excellent lawyer and an excellent person. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, then lawyers, uh, we're like, a, uh, not necessarily because of our legal training, we can be um, kind of cold and analytic, you might say. <laughs> um, and some of the lawyers jumped into action and, um that's when they formed legal community against violence. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's when they incorporated, they started, um, uh, you know, sending off a, a raft of lawsuits, uh, trying to hold the uh, gun manufacturer liable for the, the acts of the depraved maniac. Let, let's and, uh, let's just pause right there for, and dwell a bit on the, uh, on the emotion of the story. Um, because I'm going to tell you what I'm noticing about the story and how I, how I feel as you tell me this, with that anecdote you mentioned about the, the elevator, that's a very creepy story right there. He's loading up and I, I don't, I'm having a hard time, uh, picturing, um, which, what kind of weapons he had, but I know something about that if i was uh, uh to use the term that was used back then secretary if i was a secretary I, and i wasn't used to guns and i didn't even know what i was looking at uh, it might have been very very scary 
and I, of course, now I would be, I would have probably more information coming in my mind, but, uh, it were these shotguns, were these so-called assault rifles or were these handguns, you know, revolvers? It's, it's a common question. Um, uh, do you have a bag of them? Is it? He had a duffel bag full of okay. guns and ammo loaded magazines. Okay. He had, a. Uh, a nine millimeter pistol as his backup. His primary weapon was a Tech Nine, uh, which, uh, if you know what that is, it's that's a like scary a, looking gun. That would be a scary, scary looking, looking gun for... crappy gun. Yeah, too bad it didn't right. malfunction yeah. um, when he was using it. But uh, it looks like a submachine gun, even though it's not. Right. So yeah. uh, those have been banned, cool. right? Uh, in California. They have been. I think the actual company went out of business. Okay. Um, not entirely sure, but it was. Uh, it was. A, you know, you would know. It looks like an Uzi. Kind of looks uh, like an Uzi. Does it kind of look like an Uzi? Like a little Uzi? I mean, if you don't really know what an Uzi looks like, it yeah. Would. If, you, if if it, like a miniature Uzi, I guess, because an Uzi is bigger. But I don't know. I mean, I. I've shot Uzis and, you know, this was no Uzi, but it was, uh, yeah. it, it looks like a, uh, cosmetically it's meant to look like a real mean gun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When people say, when people say he has all these guns, I, I understand the emotion of that. I, I get that. But from my more analytic perspective, it it seems kind of clunky to me because I know what it's, it, it would be almost like saying he's got all these cars. And so therefore he's going to be more likely to be a DUI person or whatever. Uh, you know, it's, you can only drive one car at a time. Um, it's, it seems like uh, a bit clunky. So I was just wondering uh, kind of what he was, what he was up to. I, mean, I know he's crazy. I mean, he's a murderer. He's clearly a murderer. Well, he did have um, a manifesto that was found afterwards where he yeah. believed that the government was putting MSG in his food in order to drive him insane. And he was, a, I don't mention his name because I'm in the right. no name, no fame uh, yeah. group of people. Uh, but yeah. uh, he, uh, he, he had a... Uh, he was he was one of these people who uh, like they used to have these TV commercials at night, uh, like uh, make a million dollars in real estate. All you have to do is go to this seminar, you know. Right. And he went to one of those seminars and they actually pulled together a deal, you know, a multimillion dollar deal and hired the law firm to represent him. And they did. And. You know, I would say they did a pretty good job because when the other side breached the deal, they recovered a million dollar judgment for him. Uh, which, you know, leads you to wonder how he became a disgruntled client or former yeah. client. Yeah. But it, he blew the money and mm. his life went downhill. And then he blamed those lawyers, gotcha. basically, and so decided he, to kill him. So he was a. Uh he he made some bad choices he wasn't well or healthy and then he decided to blame other people for his life circumstance sounds like no, well and then decided and, and then and them. then and then victimize them for his yeah that's interesting um and i can tell you this they when he was going around we we know from the anecdotal information that came back that at one point, he walked into a meeting of computer techs that worked for the firm with the gun, looked around, saw none of them wearing suits and walked out. Hmm. But then when he saw a bunch of suits in a conference room, he shot right. the thing up, you know. Interesting. And there's no doubt if there had been a concealed carrier in the building who was willing to run toward the gunfire, they could have taken him out. Yeah. Easily. Okay. Yeah, we're getting we're getting to the to the next phase here because there's a 
there's an arc to your story and uh you wouldn't have said that back then right you wouldn't have said what you just said back then about the that's true theory. right after the event you know it was knee-jerk gun control yeah so when to stay in the same geographic location but a different decade when um when harvey milk was killed uh and diane feinstein was there i think she was in i think she was in the city council or something she was there and dan white i believe his name was um used uh you know he brought a gun in to the get the the building you would is it fair to say that you would have had diane feinstein's reaction because diane feinstein as i recall went immediately into gun control for from that incident is it fair to say that you would have had a similar reaction uh once things calmed down you wouldn't have said we need concealed carry people you know uh i'd like to unpack your question a little bit just because um you know, not not being a uh, reptilian octogenarian, there's no way for me to project into Diane Feinstein's brain. Uh, but what I can say is that uh, <laughs> that's a quote right there. That, that's got to be on a coffee mug or something. You, you get uh, you get ten percent. <laughs> uh, what I can say is that there was. Uh, uh, first and foremost, a sense of uh, relief and of grief and of healing, right? And secondly, there was a murmur that came from somewhere that the solution to this was gun control. Yeah. And the people yeah. who fronted that turned you know got in front of that murmur and made a big deal about it were the surviving spouses of a couple of the individuals who had been murdered and so you had some very quick testimonies come up that were arranged and funded somehow and all of a sudden people were testifying in front of congress you know, with a lot of tears, right? It was a lot, hugely emotional thing. Uh, you had it's good TV uh, on TV. You had one individual with the baby, and the mom was killed. It's good. And you uh, had, what I'm saying is, it's good ratings. It's good TV. Yeah. Well, it was it it was and good sure. news, right? If it if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and so, and there was no, uh, and I didn't have the knowledge experience tools or education to uh, uh, rebuff or to do anything other than go along with that cavalcade of let's have gun control here. Yeah. Can can I make a rhetorical observation? I, as I noticed you, as you were describing the man, the, the evil man, you were using the term gunman and that's a term I hear people use a lot um and it at that stage of emotion like i'm picturing the doors opening of the elevators and he's loading some gun and he's got guns and he's a gunman and it sounds to me like yeah in that in that emotion that fear that that horror the terror the the profound tragic sadness the anger that comes later the gun sounds like the problem you know like and what i love about your book is um you can't quite tell where it's going. I mean, there's little hints, but you're very good at telling the story. And then you, it, 
there's a real subtle shift and it, it sounds very real sounds natural the way it is i mean i can tell this is a real story um where that very understandable gun control impulse because of the way we talk and we don't even you know i'm, I'm we don't it, there's habits that we have and and there's fear and there's tears and it seems like that's obviously the answer you know so i think i'm trying to explain why so many people have that knee-jerk reaction it seems like everybody at your firm had the same i mean it's quite amazing that you have all these highly educated people and they all have the same reaction and how do you explain that um, well i mean very puzzling to me you know such a diverse uh, country we have such monolithic thinking well, about law this. firms are not ideologically diverse and even less so now than they were then where did you uh, go to law school I went to law school at uh, NYU. NYU, I've heard of that. Yeah. And where um, is that? I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kidding. It's in yeah. New York, right? Yeah, it's in New York in Greenwich Village. It's it's a very liberal, left-leaning law school, um, you know, very much uh, in the interest of civil rights and, and things like that. It's a quite an interesting backstory to the whole law school, but it's probably not something you and your listeners want to hear, but they, they bought their way into the top 10 with a, a $200 million donation from the Muller spaghetti family. Um, so, but anyway, when I went there, it was That's a, top a good law school, school though. I mean, it is probably. a good law school. And are you from New York? School, huh? Did you grow up in New York? I'm listening yeah, for I an did. accent. Oh, okay. yeah, I'm from Long Island. Long Island. All right. Yeah. And uh, I went to a college called Amherst College. Oh, yeah. The uh, Massachusetts in Massachusetts. And oh. uh, um, I was a political science English major. And I went right to law school. And um, did you I ever have Hadley was, Arcus as a professor? I did. I, I No kidding. I absolutely did have Professor Arcus. And he was one of my uh, thesis advisor uh really not advisor but my, my i had to he was on my thesis committee i had to defend my thesis to hadley arkies and no uh, kidding yeah what a wow. powerful intellect and i will say about hadley arkies he was right then and he's still right about so, his way of looking at things so you knew his view i mean i i'm assuming anybody who ever has him as a professor knows his views about things but did he how did he strike you when you when you had him does he did he, he strike he, you as crazy as an intellectual hard ass oh yeah oh yeah no he was very intellectually uh strict and uh my thesis advisor was like his adversary and was like uh a very great mind who was very uh, left-leaning. And what was that person's name? Do you recall? Well, sure. My my thesis meant my my thesis advisor was uh, Professor Kateb, who uh, Kateb, political science professor. Uh, K A T E B. Yeah, Somewhere. he moved to Princeton. I don't know if he's still a professor or not. First name? Do you remember? Uh. I don't. Okay. I don't. Interesting. Um, my, my thesis was the influence of Socratic and Christian thought on civil disobedience. And uh, Professor cool. Arkes didn't think that I penetrated the issue deeply enough. Um, and uh, sounds like he, something he would say. He would only give me a, a, a B plus and I wanted the A. But anyway, he was right. Uh, I, I didn't agree with him at the time, but I would agree with him now. Did you ever have any classes with him? Oh yeah. Do you remember what you what you took? Um, I don't. It, but okay. the abortion right. issue came up, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it had to do with first principles. Uh, first principles. Uh, this is really. Uh, 
unexpected gem of this interview. I love this. And, and it's funny because David, I'm having, mul I'm having mixed feelings as I'm, I'm having a little shame as I listen to this because I just realized I have an email from Hadley Arcus that I didn't respond to from a couple months ago. And I just remembered that during this time. So, you know, he's pretty is, available on the email. I've emailed. He's with very quick. Yeah, he's and, very quick. Uh, I, I thanked him for one of his articles that was published in American Greatness. Hmm. And he wrote me back right away. He's got a little uh, like a little foundation going and he's got uh, some uh, Amherst grad who's uh, maybe 10 years behind me, who's uh, working out there getting together for something in Washington, D.C. I'm sure uh, that if you connected with him, he, he would, you know, you might end up in Washington, D.C. at this, uh, you know, conservative think tank uh, meeting of some kind. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I emailed him. Uh, because when the Dobbs, well, actually, wait, this is, well, I knew that there was an imminent ruling from the Supreme Court. I knew it was going to come in June and on, on abortion. And I wanted to get him on the podcast to talk, to kind of predict about it and, and just kind of honor his work on it. And while we were talking about scheduling, I think the um, might've been after the leak happened. I can't remember, but the leak messed everything up. Every basically it, it took the steam out of getting him on quicker because mm -hmm. it seemed like we now knew what they were going to say. And, uh, I got my, my summer got ahead of me and I never got back to him, but, um, I know the think tank you're talking about because after I emailed him, I all of a sudden started getting emails from the James Wilson Institute. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he put my name on the email list. <laughs> so uh, he's a, he's an activist, but he's a, a deep scholar. And in fact, he's the one, probably one of the two or three people, I'd say he's one of the three people that got me interested in constitutional law in the first place, which is what I did my doctoral dissertation on. Um, but uh, it's, it's, you were very well educated. You went to this really good college and you went to NYU and you were in the middle of saying that law per law uh, lawyers. I don't know if you mean, do you mean all lawyers or just ones in that San Francisco building are pretty monolithic? Um, uh, I'm not going to interrupted you all but, lawyers. Uh, yeah. And the reason is because all lawyers have a diversity of experience and, and, uh, yeah. uh, but the kind of lawyers that work in this kind of law firm that is uh, uh, where they only recruit at the top law schools and they fly you around the country for interviews and wine you and dine you. They, they do that to this group of students that I was fortunate to be a part of uh, where there's active competition among large multinational firms to attract you to say yes to their offer. So they give you really you know, luxurious summer associate jobs and pay you for not doing a whole lot and take you on winery trips. I mean, this is how it used to be. I can't speak to what it is like now, but um, that kind of law firm was the kind of law firm that I was at. And wow. all of us almost- Sounds nice, actually. <laughs> well, it was nice, yeah. you know? Um, and And so it was nice enough such that uh, we're all, uh, you know, by definition, uh, isolated from a lot of the grittier aspects of real life existence. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where you can have the luxury of not thinking about your own self-defense mm. because, uh, it doesn't come up because right, right, tend right, to, right. you know, you work in an office where there's a, a doorman. And you live in a building where there's a doorman or you live in a neighborhood that is uphill from the lower parts of the city and not easy to access or whatever. Um, nowadays, it would be the gated community, you know, which I don't live in, but, you know, it's similar. And back yeah. then, they used to teach us in law school that the Second Amendment was a collective right. Yeah. And that was wow. you, if you took a test and said on the answer, 
that it's an individual right, well, you're going to fail that class. So, you know, wow. don't say that on your exam. If, if it's not even going to be on the exam, right? It's, yeah. it's not considered something worth testing. Yes. Back when I went to law school, I graduated law school in 1990. And, you know, amazing. Uh, that is amazing. That's not that long ago. That's no, not that long ago. And no, I, I have my political science text. I have my undergrad political science. I only took one government course as an undergrad. And I have the book still. And there, I look at the Second Amendment section, and it is pathetic. It is, it is embarrassing. And I, you know, it's like two paragraphs, or something, which which goes to the incredible intellectual body of writing and work that were was published in yes. the '80s and the '90s and the early 2000s. You know, and uh, the kind of, you know, I'm sure Chuck Michelle can list the 20 authors that contributed to that body of work through law review articles. I, I wish I could, but I don't have those names on the top of my head, but maybe you know some of them. And these are people who really went through and did appropriate historical and intellectual and constitutional analysis. And then it started to percolate up through the courts and we got Heller as a result. But before that, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I, I believe you know the cases as well or better than I do and how they came to be, but the old U.S. Miller case, I mean, that was a travesty. Right. Um, and uh, it was just the, until recently, it was treated as the, as the, you know, redheaded stepchild, so to speak, of the Constitution. Since you brought up the case, the, some of the case law, I thought I would mention one of the things I like about the book is at the end, as an appendix, you have, it looks like, is it the full, the full opinion in Heller? The, and McDonald, I think, isn't it? Is it Heller or just Heller? And, it looks like it's Heller. Okay. I think that would be Heller. a bit long. So you have the majority opinion in Heller. Yeah, that's that's cool. And so when you get the book, you get, to read and it's a very readable decision you get a well, major let, let's Court. give let's give props to uh crpa for mm -hmm. a moment yeah. and chuck michelle uh chuck was my publisher as well uh independently of crpa uh, the project is a no compensation project as far as i received no compensation uh nor did i want any uh, I wanted a chance to, I was asked by Chuck um, to do the book. And, uh, you know, I know you've had him on your show a couple times. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's great testament to his dedication and great work oh, for yeah. the decades in, in, uh, in protecting all of our rights as mm -hmm. civil rights. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, it's not the gun lobby. It's not, I love that you brought up that it's pro bono for you because the, the margins on this are not, I mean, this is, we're, we're not, we're, we're putting pennies together. You know I mean? We're not, we do not have a lot of money to do this fight to the, and Chuck takes a discounted rate to do this work. Um, and it's the, the, the language that gets thrown around, like it's, uh, we're kind of, uh, just industry sh shills, you know, I mean, no, that's not what this is. This is everybody, everybody's right to defend themselves. I think I need to tell you about, uh, tell the